The opinions and statements expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect those of WWDB, its staff, or management. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to episode 45 of the Pennsylvania Project. As you may know, here at the Pennsylvania Project, our vision is a better Pennsylvania. To achieve that vision, our mission is to boldly showcase the political, cultural, and environmental challenges facing contemporary Pennsylvania and to relentlessly pursue correct solutions. But more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem. And hopefully we can do that in less than 600,000 words, but I'll get to that. We have a judgmental episode planned for today, and like all episodes of The Pennsylvania Project, it's divided into three parts. You, them, and me. Part one is all about you, your questions, your opinions, your solutions, your whatevers. And rather than a call-in format, we are an email-in format. So if you have something to say, you can always drop us a line at PennsylvaniaProject.com. Today for the you part, we have some advice regarding the dozens of unanswered questions we had from the previous three episodes of the Pennsylvania Project, plus a new feature that we call unscripted cohorts. That should be fun, but we'll see. After the you part comes part two, the them part, where each episode we host a guest to help us showcase the political, cultural, and or environmental issues facing Pennsylvania. This one is definitely political with a lot of cultural our guest today is voting machine methodology expert Roy Minette. After the them part comes part three of the Pennsylvania Project, the me part, where it'll be my turn. Your caster, Ken Krawchuk. I'll be focusing on some particular issue that really sticks in my craw, pun intended. And no, it's not going to be more unanswered questions from past episodes of the Pennsylvania Project. What sticks in my craw this time? Ayn Rand's epic novel, Atlas Shrugged. And I have a copy with me right here. You can certainly hear it, baboom. And throughout the show, as is our long-established custom, we'll be featuring a Pennsylvania Toastmaster to serve as narrator to read our live commercials. Today we have Scott Thompson from the Climb Toastmasters Club at Senlar. Welcome to the Pennsylvania Project, Scott. Thank you, Ken. You know, I always like to hit our Toastmaster guests with cold with a question that they've never heard before. What do you like about Toastmasters? I like the part where we get up and give extemporaneous speeches. You mean like what you're doing right now? Exactly. <laughs> Do you know that's why I joined Toastmasters in the first place? I believe it. I think uh, it's important that everyone learn how to get up and speak uh, at a moment's notice. I agree. As I like to say, you can have the best message on the planet, but it's useless if you can't communicate it. True that. But, so welcome to the Pennsylvania Project, Scott. Thank you. We also have with us a second Toastmaster today, according to another one of our customs, to help us read and respond to whatever comes into our mailbag and join in on the discussions with our guest. It's a role that we call cohort. Today's cohort is no stranger to the Pennsylvania Project. He was our narrator way back in episode 14. He's a member of the Drexel University Toastmasters in Philadelphia, Daniel Graciano. Welcome back to the Pennsylvania Project, Daniel. Thank you, Ken, it's great to be back. Yeah, you didn't learn your lesson, did you? Which is? Not to come back. <laughs> I'm always surprised when the guest doesn't leave in the middle. I'm still waiting for that to happen. But, but you're still here. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a privilege to be here. I love it. I love it, too. I wouldn't do it if I didn't love it. That's what life is all about. You know, last episode, during the them portion of the show, our cohort du jour, Karen Flam, she went off script with a question of her own. Hmm. Something about a student who was raising a ruckus by taking a selfie while holding a rifle. And the school went ballistic. 
pardon the pun. <laughs> but he wasn't even at school. You know, I have, back when I was in Boy Scouts, I have pictures of me with a 22 and stuff like that. There are some kids that got uh, they got suspended because they were in their prom outfits that were wearing rifles, and they were they thought they were looking cool. The school did not think so. Something's wrong with that school. I mean, Article One, Section Twenty-One of the Pennsylvania Constitution says the right of the citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state shall not be questioned. Why are the schools questioning their right, especially when it's not on school property? Mm. But I digress. Anyway, Karen brought that up out of the blue, and we talked upon it. Now, Karen's the one who originally created the role of cohort on Pennsylvania Project, so I thought it was only fitting that she'd be the one who tries to expand it. So I ask you to bring along with you an impromptu question, one which I had not seen before today, before we walked in the studio today. And what you got? Well, I got nine. Nine? What do you mean? No, you speak German. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> nine. No, but since we're since the topic today is going to be about voting, I decided hey, this is pretty relevant to it. So one of the issues with voting is gerrymandering. Oh yeah, a lot of people talk about it, and you know, both sides of the aisle. Now, an argument that I've heard is that both parties gerrymander essentially depending who's in power in a certain area. Of course, that's how they run the whole country. Yeah, they say it's inevitable, essentially, because both parties will do it. However, is there any sort of way to control how political parties draw precincts, draw lines, without infringing on voters? And if that is true, is there a way to properly control it without having somebody else gerrymander in their own way? Well, the short answer is yes. The Pennsylvania Constitution talks about how the the different districts should be proportioned. And here it is. I have it right here. It's Article 7, Section 9, Fixing Election Districts. Quote, Township and wards of cities or boroughs shall form or be divided into election districts of compact and contiguous territories and their boundaries fixed and changed in such manner as may be provided by law. That's what it says. Of course, you're right. What they do is they try and maximize everything that they are already doing to, so that they raise the chances of their own party getting elected. Mm. But there's an easy way out of that, and that's just to have some algorithm do it, have a computer program do it. And as Roy had mentioned before, if, if you can come up with some algorithm, just everybody follows that procedure and everybody would come up with the same results, irrespective of who did it, what party was in there or anything. Mm. That'd be an approach. Are you an IT guy? What's your major? <laughs> Biomedical engineering. Uh, a very lofty title. Well, We're just engineers that work with medicine. Oh, uh, well, bioengineering, you could say that you're dividing people into compact, contiguous electoral districts. That's bioengineering, isn't it? No, 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 no. That's actually biomedical engineering. Well, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a compli it's a big field. Uh -huh. A lot of names. You know, there's one thing that really sticks in my craw about gerrymandering. Not enough to go on for a 15-minute rant about it. But what happens when they do that is they set up the district so that People on the left, they wind up with a whole bunch of people in the district who are on the left, so they elect more people from the left. And the people on the right gerrymander things, so there are more people in there from the right, so they get more of the people on the right elected. But what that does is it it makes the makeup of the state house such that it's all very, very partisan, extremely partisan. Because what happens is Moderates no longer get elected. People in the middle, people may be a little bit libertarian, they don't get elected. People who are a little more libertarian, they won't get elected either. Instead, you've got who's ever in power, they're the people who stay there. 
So if people don't like some of the polarity that we have now in government, gerrymandering can be one of the pieces left to blame. Maybe we can talk about that with our voting methodology expert when he bring, we bring him on the air. <laughs> All right, what else we got? Oh, any other, we want to follow up on any of that, or are we good? Why don't we go to a question from uh, our listenership? All right, then. Well, we got a question from Kevin Keita. He was a he was a guest on the Pennsylvania Project, episode 44. Yes, last episode. He says, I think you tried to put too many answered, or rather unanswered questions into your rant. You barely mentioned one question before you were talking about another, and gave me no time to think about what you were saying. And I wanted to hear more about some of them, but you went too fast. <laughs> it's not really a question, Ken. No, but. you know what it was? That was part of his Toastmaster evaluation, because Kevin's a Toastmaster, too. Oh, really? And I asked him for an evaluation of how I did on the show. And, I, and when he was saying it, I'm writing it down. I said, dude, you're going to be on the show next week. But he's right. Guilty as charged, Kevin. And, you know, in fact, it was my specific goal to overload the senses because there is so much wrong with the way the two old parties are running the government and not just gerrymandering that I was looking for a way to drive that fact home by running them all together as quickly as I could. And I feel I succeeded, especially with what Kevin said. And, you know, it, and I can't claim credit for coming up with the approach. I actually stole it from an REM song. And I should have mentioned that right up front of the rants back then just to better frame it because it came from the R.E.M. song, It's the End of the World as We Know It. And I'm sure, I don't know, most people know that song looking around the room, but I see a lot of heads nodding. Because not only does R.E.M. run together a litany of random topics, some of those lyrics fit quite, quite nicely with the Pennsylvania Project, such as this one. Offer me solutions, offer me alternatives, and I'll feel fine. I like that. And, you know, Billy Joel did the same thing. He had his song out, We Didn't Start the Fire. And he, same thing, took a lot of random topics from the news and smashed them all together. But his refrain, the chorus, fit nicely for the Pennsylvania Project. We didn't start the fire. No, we didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Indeed. And, you know, uh, personally, I enjoyed the three rants that it took to, to address all those unanswered questions because it made me realize how much the Pennsylvania Project has done over the last 40-plus episodes. All the ground we covered, how many solutions we've preferred, all the fun that we've had while doing it. It reminds me, there's another song, and I don't know, maybe some of our older listeners will remember this. It was by a band called Reunion in the mid-'70s, and the song was called Life is a Rock, But the Radio Rolled Me. Remember that? No, I was getting a lot of head shakes. What it was is a tribute to good old AM music. They tried to rattle off as much music trivia as possible within the 305 that was all you're allowed to have on the air back then, except for things like MacArthur Park. So in the same vein, my three rants were intended as a tribute to the good old Pennsylvania Project, in the same vein as R.E.M., Billy Joel, and Reunion. So I guess I'm going to have to apologize to Kevin if I went too fast for him to follow because that, that was my purpose. My purpose was to overwhelm. There were just so many of them. Did you did you catch that rant? <coughs> uh, I got some of it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to catch. I, I broke it up into two parts. Part of it, I, I covered 
quickly, just the questions from the episode before and then a new batch of questions where I did a sentence or two about them. Hmm. A lot of fun. I enjoyed it anyway. Let's see. Looking at the clock, I think on that musical note, that's going to have to do it for the you portion of episode 45. We're going to pause for this information, and when we return, we'll be visiting with today's guest, our voting methodology expert, Roy Minette. Did you hear the latest news? Almost two-thirds of all federal spending now goes to pay for the welfare state. More than $2.2 trillion, which just about equals federal income. Do you realize what that means? Virtually all tax revenue is now being consumed by the welfare state. But how do we rein in that runaway spending before it destroys America? The answer? The separation of society and state. That's the premise of the new novel, Atlas Snubbed, an unsanctioned parody sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. Atlas Snubbed presents a workable alternative to the welfare state as we know it. Atlas Snubbed expertly extends Rand's epic story of a looter's world snubbed by the men of the mind, bringing to life a crumbling post-apocalyptic world where no one need ask who is John Galt, because now they know. Atlas Snubbed. Available at all online bookstores or through atlassnubbed.com. Read it today before it's too late. Here's an interesting question. What do you think of these three ideas? Number one, people have at all times an inalienable right to alter, reform, or abolish their government as they think proper. Number two, juries shall have the right to determine the law as well as the facts. And number three, the right of citizens to bear arms in defense of themselves and the state shall not be questioned. Do these words sound like they're something taken from a Hollywood political thriller? Well, they're not. They're all direct quotes taken from Article One of the Pennsylvania Constitution. Everyone's heard of the United States Constitution, but have you ever heard of the Pennsylvania Constitution? Have you ever read it? But most importantly, was it ever taught to you in school? If you're like virtually all Pennsylvanians, the answers are likely to be no, no, and no. Well, it's long past time we change those answers to yes, yes, and yes. And you have a crucial part to play in making that come to pass. As you know, we here at the Pennsylvania Project are all about solutions. So we've authored a petition demanding that the Pennsylvania Constitution be taught to our children. If you believe it's important for our children to know how our state government works, head over to our website, PennsylvaniaProject.com and add your name to the growing list of signers. And every time we accumulate another batch of signatures, we'll send a copy of the petition to the governor, the Pennsylvania Board of Education, and each and every one of the 501 school districts in Pennsylvania, asking them right now to start teaching our children the Pennsylvania Constitution. So please sign the petition at PennsylvaniaProject.com. Do it now while it's on top of your mind. The alternative is yet another generation that has never heard of, let alone read the Pennsylvania Constitution and people wonder why no one votes anymore. Too true, Scott. You know, every time I hear that commercial, I'm th- I just shake my head. I can't believe it's gone this far. I didn't even know we had a constitution though. I was well into my 30s. Live and learn. So hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and welcome to the them portion of episode 45 of the Pennsylvania Project, where we host a guest to help us showcase the political, cultural, and or environmental issues facing contemporary Pennsylvania. Our guest today is heavy-duty political, plus a lot of cultural, plus a very knowledgeable guy all around. He's Roy Minette, voting methodology expert, physicist, taught economics. He tinkers a lot at home. You should visit his house. He's got some amazing 3D-printed stuff there, too. And he's famous. He was the Libertarian Party candidate for Pennsylvania Auditor General in 2016. 
And believe it or not, he's not a Toastmaster. Heaven forbid. Welcome to the Pennsylvania Project, Roy. Thanks, Ken. I'm surprised you're welcoming me since I'm not a Toastmaster, but I'm, no. I'm very glad to be here. It's infrequent that our guest is a Toastmaster. I would say 20%, 25% are Toastmasters. Some that we meet through Toastmasters. Uh, Liz Jordan, who is here in episode 40, talking about sexually assaulted women. Uh, she was a narrator here, and she says, listen, you should, I've got a message. It's like, what? She said, My father was a pedophile alcoholic. It's like, whoa, whoa, that was that's a frightening episode. Anyway, so you never know. It's okay that you're not a Toastmaster because you have a, a good voice anyway and a good way of speaking. Thank you. And you're a voting methodology expert. Did you, when you were three years old, did you say, I'm going to grow up to be a voting methodology expert? <laughs> no, didn't start quite that early. When Four, I was a four. kid, I decided I was going to be a physicist. Uh-huh. And in 2004 is when I got interested in voting methodologies. I read an article in Scientific American magazine written by a couple of economists, and they were talking about the subject, what was the fairest method of voting of all. Why are economists talking about voting methodologies? What are they, buying votes? Well, <laughs> that does happen, but, but no. Voting is considered a to fall in the, the domain of economy. Most of the papers are in economic journals. How about that? I never knew that. What, why do you think that is? Just because of the mathematical angle to it? Well, possibly. I mean, it could be mathematics as well. There's a lot of mathematical papers that have been written about voting methods. And it was a Nobel Prize won by a guy, guy named Kenneth Arrow back in the early 50s, I think it was, where he, uh, he wrote out three axioms that he thought made sense that all voting methods needed to, to comply with that, that would, were fair. And you read the axioms, you say, yeah, yeah, they should all do that. And then he proceeded to prove that no voting method was possible <laughs> that could satisfy all three of them at the same time. So, so here are these three axioms for fair voting. And by the way, they're not any good for and fair voting. And by the way, you can't have a voting method that satisfies them all. Do you know what they are off the top of your head? Uh, I do, but I, I don't really want to get into that. It's a long discussion, and that's a tangential topic to so, what I'd really like to cover today. So it's, it's not, a, not an because easy thing. I don't think fairness is the most critical issue about voting methods. The most critical issue is about choosing the correct winner. Well, well more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem, as we like to say. Exactly. Here. Precisely. So what is the problem that you're solving? Well, the problem is well, there's a couple bunch of problems. In fact, the voting methods sounds like that ought to be simple, and most people yeah. think it's simple, but yeah. it turns out it's not simple. No, you go in, you pull the lever, and the guy loses. And there's a lot of issues, a lot of issues. Uh, first of all, can the voting method that you're using pick the correct winner a large percentage of the time? Well, wait. wait what, do you, what do you mean by correct? I mean, if 51% if of the people pick this guy and 49% don't? Yeah. He's the correct guy, isn't he? Well, there's a couple of very critical definitions that you have to agree to before you start designing a, a voting method is what's it supposed to accomplish. And the first thing is you have to agree that the objective, the primary objective of any election is to make the best 
decision, the best choice among uh, the candidates. Well, you're using all of these subjective words, and I have this thing in the back of my head. Whenever anybody says the best or better or something like that, it's like, in whose opinion? Of course. This leads to the next definition. You can't say the objective is to uh, make the best decision unless you have a clear definition of what the best decision is. Okay. Well, you're the one who said it. You said pick the best candidate. Now, what do you mean then, uh, by that? The then? best decision, the only way it really makes much sense to define it is that you have to assume that the voters collectively do have in their heads some idea of what a good decision would be. And the challenge is to get that information out of their heads onto a ballot and then make that I best see. decision. So it's a collective best decision. Yes. The, every voter loves some candidates, hates others, uh-huh. doesn't give a rip about a lot of them. Right. It doesn't but know a rip about a lot of them. They may love candidate, may hate a candidate, they may have some opinion that's anywhere in between. So you need to be able to capture that and choose the candidate that maximizes the voter satisfaction of all the voters. There was that word again. Maximize satisfaction? That is correct. In whose opinion? In the collective opinion. Yes, the collective opinion of all the voters. We have no choice but to assume that the voters can make a good decision. So we collect Uh the data and make the best decision. If I may add just a question, sort of going off of your definition and what you were speaking about before, it sort of makes it seem that perhaps ranked choice voting might be one of the more effective ways to pick a candidate because, therefore, if you have a voter that likes person A, doesn't like person B so much, they rank them one, two, and three. Well, it is definitely more effective than plurality. Plurality is the absolutely worst possible voting method. But it turns out that ranked choice methods are better, but they're not enough better. There are much, much wait, better wait, wait, methods wait. than ranked choice methods. I'm going to back you up. So this plurality method we have of voting today, you're saying is the worst? It sucks. <laughs> May I use that word on the air? It <laughs> sucks. I don't know. We're going to have to turn to Daniel. Daniel's nodding his head. Uh, we can say not. things suck. <laughs> I'm getting an okay on that. Yeah. Well, All you're right. a vacuum cleaner salesman, right? Well, yeah. yeah. I, I can tell you there are symptoms of the – the fact that we're using an awful voting methodology. I'm sorry, I derailed your question, but go ahead. We elect elect candidates, we elect people that more people dislike than like. Mm -hmm. Uh, (laughs) About half the elections for Pennsylvania General General Assembly seats have only one candidate on the ballot. Yeah, welcome to communist Pennsylvania. So that's no choice at all. So that's a symptom. We have a class of elite career politicians that have gotten into power and it's very hard to replace them or remove them. Yeah, but that's going to come back to something we talked about on numerous shows before about ballot access getting on the – Oh, yeah, that's another it's, issue. It's, it's next to impossible for a third party to get on the ballot. We have to get two, three, four, five times as many signatures as the old party candidates. Let's face it. The career politicians have rigged the system to, yeah. keep, to help – Keep yeah. themselves in power. So I think that's more why you have only one person running is because they're stopping good candidates from getting on the ballot. And the final thing I would cite is this has gone on for so long that people are used to it. Yeah. They think that's the way it is well, and look, there's no way to fix it. Right. And look what I just said. Are you saying that we're using the worst possible voting system? You just said yes. And Daniel's over here saying we should use IRV, instant runoff voting. And you're saying that's no good either. 
I'm saying that's teeny bit better than plurality, but it's not what we need. Uh-huh. So then what about the electoral college then? Like how you got a you have the popular vote, you have the electoral college vote, and the idea with the electoral college is that it sort of adds another element to the popular vote. It does, and I wouldn't call that a voting methodology topic. Mm. It's uh, more or less a organizational concept. Yeah, but like, a, like a parliamentary form of government, it would be the, the same kind of topic. Yeah, and I personally think that the Electoral College was put there by the Founding Fathers for a very good reason, and we don't want to get rid of it. But and, and I, I agree with that, too, hmm. because what it does is it prevents mob rule. It slows down the fads. That is correct. And I think it's a good idea, but that's Yeah, right. that, was, that was more or less what I was going to ask about, just to... Uh-huh. And which way do you feel about it? You like the Electoral College? Oh, I love the Electoral College. I think it's a great idea. Uh-huh. I mean, what, what do you like about it? Well, I think having a popular vote of people is not a good idea. I mean, just look at all the cities. I mean, you have a whole bunch of cities that sway one way, and you know, a whole bunch of people live in that city. They're really going to be understepping a whole bunch of people in the rest of the country. I know. You know, my, my in-laws were all from upstate New York outside of the city and they're the same way new york city is just so heavy population wise that it just it depowers them now they got their safe act took away all their guns and now everybody is unsafe and it's interesting too because it seems like it's the states where you have the largest cities or the people that live (coughs) in the cities they believe that popular vote should be the way of, course. of the land. Of course. They're just like the gerrymander people we were talking about before. We're in power. It's going to go our way. No. So let, let's get back on the hmm. voting methodologies here and get away from government structure. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm going to make a note. We're going to talk right. about that for a well, future one. Let, let me first describe the perfect voting method. And that would be suppose we had a machine and we can call it a satometer that can read people's minds. So when they walk into the voting booth, the machine accurately reads how much they like each candidate or how much they dislike each candidate, and it registers that. So all we have to do then is, after the last voter has been through there, is we add up all the satisfactions by candidate, subtract the dissatisfactions, the one with the highest total obviously has maximized the satisfaction of all the voters who voted. Now the trouble is, we don't have a satometer, so well, we're well, we, in deep we, doo-doo. We do, but it's, it's very, very coarse-grained. It's very Boolean, right? So, like, there could be a, a married couple where the guy votes one old party and the girl votes the other old party, or it might be another guy. Welcome to the 21st century, right? <laughs> but they cancel out each other's vote, but it's very Boolean. So what you're talking about is spreading that out, where I, I like this guy kind of somewhat, but this guy not as much, but I really like that guy, but but not as much as I like Well, that guy. would be ideally the case. But it turns out that you really don't need that much resolution, that many points in the scale, uh-huh. if you have a lot of voters. The, the statistically large number huh. of voters makes up for that resolution. So you can get away with a pretty small scale, it so, turns out. So what do you need? It's not going to be binary because that's what we have now. You, how well, many? it turns out it is uh, tertiary. Three? So it's what? I care, don't care? Or don't I, like. I don't care. I like them, or I don't like them. Like, don't like, don't care. That's it. I got to write that down. That's all we need, and from that we can do a good job 
with a voting method. And I think a lot of the voters would like that too. After listening yeah. to all those ads, as political ads, don't care, don't care, don't care, don't care, don't care, don't care. Yeah. And I don't like him. So then what about people now in our current voting system who choose not to vote? Wouldn't their choice be equivalent to I don't care? Yeah. It certainly would. Yeah, that's one way of saying you don't care if you don't even go to the polling place. Satometer with three positions. Well, we don't have a satometer. And without a satometer to get honest feelings from people's brains, voters lie. They're notorious liars. They vote for the lesser evil instead of the candidate that they like. If you give them a scale, they think, hmm, well, instead of picking five on the scale, I'm going to pick the maximum number, 10, because that's going to give my ballot the biggest impact in the direction I want to go. You lost me on this. Where, where did the 10 come from? You could think of vote for 10 people? No, I just said if you give them a scale, they lie. They're going to say, I'm going to vote. Oh, I see. The I maximum, see. the minimum. That's why that's giving why them a scale three. doesn't you, help. You, you don't need it. That's right. We keep them from lying by saying, okay, it's just yes or no. Uh-huh. You like them, you don't like them, or you dislike them, or you don't care. <laughs> you know, Roy, this is, this is all new to me. I mean, I've run for governor of Pennsylvania a couple of times. I ran against Ed Rendell. I ran against Tom Wolf. I've done some local races, things like that, for Abington Commissioner. Yeah. And I've never, ever heard anything like what you're saying now. And I've known you for a while. I haven't even heard this from you before. Yeah, well, that's because last summer I got involved with election simulation. There's been a 250-year debate going on about voting methods, and it hasn't really gotten to a conclusion. And that's because people are microscopically examining certain examples of various voting methods and trying to draw statistical conclusions from it, and you can't do that. Uh-huh. So the best approach, it turns out, is let's simulate elections. Let's generate the voters' impressions, and then we'll know what the voters think. We'll have them fill out ballots for various voting methods, and we'll see which ones work best. My guest today, it shows voting methodology expert Roy Minette. And you, sir, are good. I'm your caster, Ken Krawchuk, and you're listening to episode 45 of the Pennsylvania Project. We'll be right back after this information. Do you like the Pennsylvania Project? You must. After all, you're listening to it right now. But would you like more? More of the rants, the guests, the fun? Well, you're in luck, because by popular demand, we've added even more content. Things like keeping the mics live after the credits roll at the end of the show while we continue our on-air conversations. It's all 100% unscripted and often includes things we can't say on the air. Or shouldn't. Would you like access to each episode the day it's recorded? Live streams of every show as it happens? Behind-the-scenes interviews and bonus videos with our guests? All this and more is now available at thepennsylvaniaproject.com. But wait, there's even more. Sign up today... And you also get a copy of Ken's novel, Atlas Snubbed, a parody sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged. And you can even call in live and participate on the show. How's that for more content? You can be the content. So if the idea of more Pennsylvania Project excites you, head on over to PennsylvaniaProject.com and click the More Fun link at the top of the page. Solve the correct problem correctly and sign up today. 
Hey, Daniel here, cohort on the Pennsylvania Project. You know, it's easy to find a high paying job. At least for some people it is. Employers are begging for competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. But do these words describe you? Competent leader communicates effectively? If not, or even if they do, you might want to consider joining Toastmasters. The mission of Toastmasters is to provide a supportive environment for learning communication and leadership skills. But does it really work? Well, look at me. I joined Toastmasters, and now I'm on the radio. <laughs> so turn your life around like I have. Visit Toastmasters.org and contact a club near you. Visitors are always welcome, and be sure to mention my name. The future is anxiously waiting for competent leaders who know how to communicate effectively. You can be that leader. It all starts at Toastmasters.org. Are you a small business owner always looking for referrals? Do you have a streamlined approach to generating new referrals? Contact Stephen Worley to learn the fast, easy way to generate new referrals. Stephen has an all-inclusive system that will help you generate an extra 5 to 10 customers per week without spending a single dollar on ads. You won't have to create a website, have pictures taken, or write a single ad. Stephen will take the headache out of the process. Contact him at stephenworley.com. That's Stephen with a V. W-E-R-L-E-Y dot com. Fly fishermen, new and old, understand the importance of affordable quality gear. At Christopher Fave Fly Fishing, we have provided that for over a quarter century. Whether you fish dries, wets, or any combination, Christopher Fave, F-A-V-E, flyfishing.com has an American-made leader for you. Pennsylvania Proud, our reputation rests solely on your complete satisfaction. Again, that's ChristopherFayFlyFishing.com. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here, and we are back with episode 45 of the Pennsylvania Project, and our guest, voting methodology expert Roy Minette, who did not run out the door. He's still sitting here smiling. That's got to be a good sign. For the break, you, you were you started off on another subject right off the bat and you caught my ear because my training is in physics i'm an it guy i do a lot of simulations i'll simulate network operations i'll simulate people i've done the floor trading system for one of the stock exchanges and stuff like that so how do you simulate an election well first of all why do you want to simulate an election i want to simu simulate elections so that i can run millions of them and test various voting methods in every conceivable kind of election and see which ones get the right answer most often. Huh. And right answer, though, it comes back to what you were saying before with your... comes back to that definition of what the best decision is. Uh-huh. Maximizes the satisfaction of all the voters who voted net of their dissatisfaction. Uh -huh. Do you know, I was actually thinking of doing something similar. I like to play backgammon. It's actually one of the oldest – it is the oldest board game. It's like 5,000 years old or something like that. But if I wrote a pro computer program that did it, I could just have one computer program and play the other. And they could try all the various strategies. And they could do the same thing that you're doing to find out what the best one is. Of course, that would be to win the game. But yours is to satisfy the greatest number of voters, to have the, the least number of angry people, I Mine guess I Mine is say. to evaluate the performance of various voting methods. And uh, I have, since last summer, run, I don't know how many million, but many millions, millions of elections. Yes. Really? Yes. Actually, um, <laughs> good desktop computer can run off uh, 100,000 elections in two minutes or so. Whoa. So that's not too bad. 
So I have a lot of data. And, uh, of course, you can say, well, it's only valid to the extent that I have meaningfully simulated real elections. That's true. And that comes with what Daniel was talking about, the gerrymandering. And there is, unfortunately, no concrete way to prove whether or not I have accurately and meaningfully simulated real elections, but I believe that I have. Yeah, well, there's got to be some microcosm you can use. And one of the ones that I like to point to all the time is Toastmasters. Yes, I always go back to Toastmasters. We have speech contests, and we talked about them. Uh, I'm not going to remember the episode off the top of my head. But the way we vote for them is first, second, third place. The judges will say this is the best speaker, second best speaker, and third best speaker. And we assign points to that. person who gets number one, they get three points. Second place gets two points, and third place gets one point. We tally up all the points, and the person with the most points wins. So it's possible that the person who wins the contest didn't get a single first-place vote. That's possible. So that, that's the one that I always start with. Well, would you like me to give you some of the conclusions and revelations from simulating millions and millions of elections? Uh, no, Roy, I'm afraid we're out of time. And oh, sorry. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. Go for it. I make it on the list. I was going to ask you, what did you find? Conclusion number one, plurality is indeed every bit as bad as we already knew, knew it is. Now, how did, how did you measure that satisfaction after the election? Oh, my goodness. It's in terms of uh, how far, how much less the satisfaction is for the candidates that plurality picks than the one that should win which has the maximum satisfaction. So we actually get a quantitative measure of how the statistical performance of each voting method is. Okay, and this comes back to what you're saying before about how you how you build your simulation. Yes, we create all the voters, we put the thought the opinions of every candidate in their head so we know what they are. We can add them up, we know what the correct winner is. We have the voters, thousands of voters in each election fill out the ballots for each Voting method, we add up the ballots, determine the winner, compare it with the correct winner, and see how far wrong it was. Uh huh. Well, that's why I brought up the Toastmaster example, because maybe you could find, maybe you could have within Toastmasters, for example, have them do a parallel election and see how it fits with what the audience says. Ask the audience who they think should have won. Might be interesting. Yeah. Let me continue with some of these revelations. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm interrupting you. My apologies. Instant runoff voting, IRV, which is a ranked choice, one of the many ranked choice methods, turns out that that's only slightly better than plurality. It's also very subject to the vote for the lesser of evils, uh, insincere voting problem. Okay. Okay, it actually turned out that no ranked choice method could do a very good job. The best it can do is cut the error that plurality has down by a little bit more than a factor or two, now that's not to that's be good. that's not to be sneezed at, but uh-huh. we but we can do a whole lot better than that. Uh, I in two thousand seven, I think it was, I wrote a paper which uh, derived what has to be the best ranked choice voting method, and in running these simulations, looks like it is. It's still not very good though. Well, what, 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 was that? what was that? It's called MRCV, and I've mentioned that to you before. And it does, in fact, do the best job of much better than instant runoff voting, How better than that? pairwise comparison, beats Condorcet, 
it, it, it's definitely the best, unless somebody comes up with another ranked choice method for me to test, which I'll be glad to do, it's the best one of those. But there are lots better methods than ranked choice can methods. You, can you give us a 30-second description of what MRCV is? Yeah. you rank, I, Can you spell it? You, you rank the, the top three candidates, one, two, and three. You don't have to rank them all, but you're limited to three. Okay. We add up the scores. The, the first place on everybody's ranking gets four points. The second place gets two points. The third place gets one point. Candidate uh, that has the, yeah, yeah. the smallest number of points is eliminated. Any lower choices that can move up and fill in the the uh, top the place of a, an eliminated candidate, and then we simply add up the points again, and we go through that until we only have one candidate left. Interesting. What does MRCV stand for? Minette rank choice vote. <laughs> I told you you're a voting methodology expert. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's turning red here, by the way. That's just off his sweater. Okay, now another voting method that's advocated by a lot of people is approval voting. And that turns out to be about the same as the best rank choice method. And what does approval method mean? That means that you can approve as many of the candidates as you would be happy if they won. So I could I could approve 15 or 20 candidates if there were 15 or if 20 If there were that ballot. many on the ballot, you certainly could. Or you oh, could dear. even write them in and approve them. Uh-huh. Okay, but the big revelation of all the voter simulations is that if you want to do better than ranked choice methods, you can't just look at half of the data, which is the candidates that people like. You uh-huh. also have to give people a way to convey which candidates they don't like. That's your plus one, minus one, don't care. That is mm. correct, yes. Uh-huh. So that shouldn't be too surprising since we know people I, like candidates I've and they hate heard candidates. We're, we're all about solutions here at the Pennsylvania Project. Boy, that sounds like a wonderful solution. Yeah, and then the, the, the likes and the dislikes have to offset each other. Uh-huh. So that makes a very different picture, and it certainly improves the ability of the voting method to choose the correct winner. Uh-huh. Now, I could, I could see one flaw with that. What happens if they exactly balance out and you come out with don't care? I guess you flip a coin. We have that now, right, if it's a tie in the election. Well, it's possible that a don't care candidate could win. <laughs> but they have to have... I love it. Enough. Love you it. can't have <laughs> some write-in candidate that scored zero win. You have to have a qualifying minimum number of votes, which uh-huh. is 1% of the maximum of the votes that the candidate that got the most votes, 1% of that. That's the minimum that you can have if you want to qualify. Could you write this out as a, as a law, something that we could pass and give it a try? Absolutely. I give you, do you have it? Have you done that already? I certainly have. Oh, man. We're gonna have, well, look, if you want to come down to it, I'll tell you what the bottom line is. is we only have a couple of minutes left. We're going to have to. All right. The best voting method that I have found is one called best alternate worst. In other words, you get to identify the best candidate. Yeah. You pick an alternate which gets to be your best candidate if your best candidate is eliminated, and you identify the worst candidate, the guy that you like the least. Uh That produces the best results, 
It also is the only way to get rid of the vote for the lesser evil's motivation. You can't get rid of the vote for the lesser evil opportunity if we're going to have free and open elections, but you've got to remove the motivation for it. Okay, and how do I find out the best, the alternate, and the worst? Is this by your plus, minus, don't care? Yeah, yeah you, you have on the ballot. Check the X, the best box or the worst box or the alternate box oh, you for check, each candidate. Yeah, so you could just do it as, however many candidates there are, like if there's five people running for city council. Yeah, but you only get to check one best, one worst, and one alternate. Interesting. Yes. And why is that the best? It just comes out statistically to be the best. And if you think about it, the worst case for any given voter is they don't worry about more than three candidates. They say, hey, there's somebody I really, really don't like, and I'd sure hate for them to win the election. Right, so they're going to vote for the other person. Here's the guy that I like, and then there's somebody that you say, well, but if my guy I like doesn't win, I'd like to be able to vote for the lesser evil. That's the alternate. Uh huh. So you're actually catering to people's whim. Yes. I like that. That way we get honest information from the voters. And satisfaction out of the voters. Yes. And that has, instead of about half the errors of plurality, that gets you down to like one-sixth the error of plurality. Roy, I'm going to give you some homework. I want to see a, a law. Let's let's use the uh, Pennsylvania Libertarian Party. Our convention's coming up soon. By the way, we're going to be doing the show live from the Pennsylvania Libertarian Party convention. That should be fun. But put together something that would just say, here's how the voting is, something that I could take a look at and we could come back and we'll revisit here. All right. That's a solution. I can do that, Ken. Okay. Roy, we're out of time. And as, oh. as our producer warned you at the top of the show, it goes by quickly, and it does. This has been fascinating. It's been much more fascinating than I thought it was going to be. Not, nothing against I'll you, I'll take sir. that as a compliment. You, you certainly can. I mean, you've done your homework. You know what, what you're doing with your millions of simulations and stuff. Well, I've been... Work going on this for 250 years. I've been doing it for about 10. Any final comments you want to get in there? Any website well, you want to send people to? Yeah, if anybody's interested in more details on this, it's all written up and everything. It's on posted on my website. There's a elections and voting page. The website is roymanet.org. R-O-Y-M-I-N-E-T dot O-R-G. I'm writing it down because it'll wind up with our show notes when we publish this on our website. That's going to have to wrap it up for the then portion of the show. My thanks again to our voting methodology expert with his millions of simulations and his satisfactions, Satometer, Roy Minette. Thanks for being on the show, Roy. We're going to pause for this information. And when we return, I'll be ranting about something that really sticks in my craw. And no, it's not more unanswered questions on the Pennsylvania Project. It's Ayn Rand's epic novel, Atlas Shrugged. The following is a commercial announcement. Hey, Scott, how's it going? Bad, Ken. Really bad. Why? What do you mean? Our friends over at the uh, Infernal Revenue Service paid me a personal visit the other day. The IRS? Yeah. Two big British guys. Scared us all half to death. I bet. What did they want? Money. And lots of it, too. (laughs) Remember that part-time gig I took on last summer? Oh yeah, I remember. You were raking in some big bucks. Yeah, and all those big bucks went straight into my personal bank account. It turns out the IRS doesn't like that. And I didn't file any of the right forms or pay nearly enough in taxes. So they want it all now. Right now. Plus, penalties and interest. Ouch. Sounds like you should have called Amendment 16. 
Hey, it's the damn 16th Amendment that got me into this predicament in the first place. No, no. Amendment 16, the invoicing service. They'll invoice your client for the hours and expenses you report to them. And when your client pays them, they pay you. Minus all required state and federal taxes. It's that easy. One call does it all. And they'll even have an accountant do your personal taxes for you come April Fool's Day. I mean, come April 15th. And they take care of all the taxes and all the forms? Yep. And they can pass along certain tax breaks, too. Man, I wish I knew about Amendment 16 sooner. Where can I find them? On the web, of course, at amendment16.com, with 16 spelled out. That's amendment, S-I-X-T-E-E-N.com. One call does it all. You've been a registered libertarian for years, voted for libertarians even longer, and lived by libertarian principles all your life. Now it's time to take the next step and become a dues-paying member of the Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania. Keep abreast of the march toward liberty in Pennsylvania, take an active role in making it happen, maybe even consider running for local political office yourself. It all starts with becoming a dues-paying member of the Libertarian Party of Pennsylvania. It's easy, fast, and only $20 a year. So visit LPPA.org to sign up today. That's LPPA.org. Do it today. A freer future is waiting. Hey, Ken Krawchuk here again, and welcome to the me portion of episode 45 of the Pennsylvania Project, where I get to rant about something that really sticks in my craw. And as I said, it's not more unanswered questions, even though we still have a bunch left. We're going to instead start with a spoiler alert, because what sticks in my craw is the greatest fiction ever written. And no, it's not the 10-day weather forecast, although a good argument can be made for that being fiction. And no, it's not the platform of either of the two old parties. It's too easy a target if you ask me. Nope, the greatest fiction ever written, in my opinion, is Atlas Shrugged, the epic novel by Ayn Rand. And despite its greatness, it sticks in my craw. Yes, it's philosophically groundbreaking. Yes, it's romantic writing at its finest. Yes, it's the source of the Libertarian Party's pledge not to initiate the use of force. But despite all that good stuff, there's still a lot to stick in anyone's craw. Let's start with the obvious, its length. It's absolutely huge. And as I said, I have it right here. It's gigantic. Well over a thousand pages. My hardback edition has 1146 pages, 1146. It's the 27th longest novel ever written in history. And the audiobook is an astounding 63 hours long. <laughs> Not doing anything for the rest of the year. Here's an idea for you, right? And as a poster child for that incredible length, there is The Speech, capital T, capital S, The Speech, John Galt's Speech, that is, a mere 33,000 words, almost 5% of the 27th longest novel ever written, is page after page after page of a single paragraph, a droning monologue that John Galt in the book claims is only two hours long. Yeah, right. Consider that the average English language speaker talks at a rate of about 125 words a minute. I go about 125, 150, I talk fast. But do the math. 33,000 words, 125 words a minute. That's exactly four hours, Mr. Galt. And in the book, he's supposed to be a physicist. With those math skills, he probably would never invent anything useful. You know, to fit Galt's speech into two hours, he'd have to speak four words a second. <laughs> four words a second. Tough. 
Maybe he should change his name to Alvin Chipmunk. I don't know. But no, to be fair, Galt was never a fast talker. You know, I can tell you why that book is so long. It's not just Galt's speech that makes it long. Just like the journey of a thousand miles beginning with a single step, the 27th longest novel ever written begins with the longest sentence ever written. Sentences, a lot of them. Let me give you one example. It's from late in the book. You ready? Quote, The wires had been worn by more rains and years than they had been intended to carry. One of them had kept sagging through the hours of that morning under a fragile load of raindrops. Then its one last drop had grown on the wire's curve and had hung like a crystal bead, gathering the weight of many seconds. The bead and the wire had given up together, and, as soundless as the fall of tears, the wire had broken and fallen with the fall of the bead. Unquote. Isn't that beautiful? You just imagine that. You can see it. That's an example of romantic writing at its finest, in my opinion. Not to mention, it's my personal favorite sentence in the entire book out of all those 1,100 plus pages. But, you know, among its 88 words in that run-on sentence, it boasts no fewer than five commas and three semicolons, which is kind of an excessive number. Semicolons, right? Who uses semicolons anymore? Yeah, I use them too. There's a couple hands going up in the room. Yeah, even, even our radio engineer back there behind the glass has his hand up. And this is in a world where people don't even know how to use apostrophes anymore. Well, anyway, I digress. Suffice it to say, Atlas Shrugged is dauntingly large. Not that I'm that innocent. I've written a sequel to her book. It's titled Atlas Snubbed. And it has no Olympic-length sentences, I must add. And the big speech at the end is mere 4,800 words, not one-seventh the size of Galt's speech. But mercifully, I broke up that big speech into a lot more than just one big monolithic paragraph. I have it right here. In, I said it next to Atlas Shrugged, and it's this, the director's cut version is about a little more than half the size. But my font is bigger than hers. She does like four point, and I do nine point or something like that. And it's not only the length of Atlas Shrugged that sticks in people's craws, but what about those unbelievably deep plot holes? Like, for example, the night John Galt gets rescued from the State Science Institute. I told you there'd be spoilers. A huge fleet of airplanes land on a field in New Hampshire to form the brunt of the attack. Well, that's all well and good except for one minor detail. The rescue happens on the night of February 27th. And all these planes land in a field? The odds of there being several feet of snow on the ground at that latitude and time of year is a virtual certainty. That plot hole is quite a snow job, if you ask me. But the absolute worst part of the novel is that love story between Francisco and Dagny. Oh, they were such a hot couple early on. But then Francisco starts doing all these outrageous things to the poor woman. He walks out on her without explanation. He makes her life as hard as he possibly can. And he keeps repeating that he's out to destroy not only her business, but all the businesses around her that she depends on. Well, that's bad enough. But towards the end of the novel, when they meet again, oh, this Casanova Francisco, he tells her how much he loves her. Yeah, right, loves her. I beg your pardon? This is the same guy who spent his life making her life as mis spent his life making her life as miserable as possible. And then he has the gall to tell her, and I quote, "If it's any kind of atonement, whatever I made you suffer, I paid for it by knowing what I was doing to you and having to do it." <laughs> Pardon me, 
What sort of person deliberately hurts the woman he professes to love and then has the nerve to cite his own suffering as atonement for having deliberately hurt her? What a gentleman! And he's supposed to be a hero of the book? I guess Dagny is partially to blame because the guy she took up with after Francisco left her, he'd leave her bleeding and bruised after having sex and then he set her up to be shamed on national radio. I guess Dagny's one of those miserable masochists who love to be mistreated. I keep wondering why she just didn't run off with Eddie. At least he never let her down or destroyed the things she loved or beat her up in bed, but, but I digress. And it's not just Atlas Shrugged. It sticks in my crawl despite my love of the book. It is my favorite book. It's objectivists in general that stick in my crawl. And they love Galt's speech, by the way, all 33,000 words of it. But let me save them for a future rant. So on that warning note, let's going to wrap it up for the episode 45 of The Pennsylvania Project. What do you think about Atlas Shrugged? The evils of instant runoff voting? Or songs with too many words all crammed together? Or somewhat anything Pennsylvania related? If you have something to say, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us at PennsylvaniaProject.com right after you sign our petition, that is. And you can hear us there, too, as well as on iTunes and other popular podcast providers. Today's episode is courtesy of Amendment 16 Limited, recorded live at the studios of WWDB Radio, broadcasting in Philadelphia at 860 on the AM dial every Saturday at 10 a.m., and now broadcasting in Kutztown on KUR Radio at 1670 on the AM dial every Monday at 7 a.m., and released as a podcast every Tuesday at PennsylvaniaProject.com. Our webmaster is Stephen Worley, marketing guru Connor Dragotis, featured Toastmaster narrator Scott Thompson. Featured Toastmaster cohort Daniel Graciano, keyboard wizard Joe the Pag, radio producer Dan Fritz standing in for Brett Kronberger, executive producer Mark Bazzacco, and me, your caster, Ken Krawchuk. Thanks for joining us, and remember, more important than solving the problem correctly is to solve the correct problem. <laughs>